enjoy the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. Apologies for skipping another week. I don't want to make a habit of it. I hate the idea of only releasing one podcast a month, but I had an article deadline. I write a bit for a company that publishes online articles about career and education options, and I was, deliciously, writing and collecting interviews encouraging women to enter STEM fields. You may have seen a snippet of it on my Twitter. I get very excited about women doing science and working with computers and technology and doing engineering things and being better at math than I am. You may have also seen the moment where I decided to fact-check myself, and I found that I told you a lie last episode. Sally Ride was not the first woman in space. She was the first American woman in space. Soviet cosmonaut Valentina Tereshkova went to space 20 years before Ride, in 1963. I didn't investigate the details of Tereshkova's flight to space, yet, but I looked into Ride's spaceflight mission and found that she answered a newspaper ad when she was a student, and that's how she got into the astronaut program. NASA was looking for women astronauts in 1977, and Ride was one of six women picked to go through the astronaut training program, right after she earned her doctorate in physics in 1978. She went up into orbit in 1983 in a spacecraft, specifically a space shuttle, named Challenger. This was the Challenger orbiter's second flight and the first NASA mission with a five-person crew. Ride operated the robotic arm that placed satellites into orbit. She left NASA in 1987 to teach at the University of California, San Diego, but kept finding ways to get women into STEM. She was also a lesbian, which wasn't made public until after she died in 2012 and left behind her partner of 27 years, Tam O'Shaughnessy, who was a fascinating figure in her own right as a children's book writer and tennis player. Wright is also survived by her sister, who is a lesbian and a Presbyterian minister, named Karen Bear Ride. Can you tell I love these little facts? There's a very interesting interview with O'Shaughnessy that was held after Ride's death about why Ride chose not to disclose her sexuality until her obituary was printed. And it echoed a lot of what I heard while I was interviewing women who work in STEM for the article I wrote. You don't want to be defined by your gender when you're in a male-dominated field, any more than you want to be defined by your sexuality when you're in a role that, historically, would fire you, because until pretty recently, government employees, which astronauts are, could be fired for being gay. NASA's own non-discrimination policy on their website now states, quote, Employees should expect to find a diversity of sexual orientations at NASA. In the past, it was common practice to fire or refuse to hire suspected homosexuals in the federal workplace. Employees have been physically threatened, verbally abused, and subjected to hostile working conditions. Laws and policies have changed, and all NASA employees need to be aware of their responsibility to prevent this form of discrimination and to ensure that lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender individuals are an accepted and valued part of the diverse NASA workforce. In this episode, I want to spotlight something, not about the LGBT community in NASA, 
This is going to be a bit of a bummer episode, but we just had a major event anniversary yesterday, January 28th, the day that I'm recording this podcast. You may already know about it if you were aware of NASA in the 1980s. It was a big deal. Lots of news coverage. It also had some pretty powerful repercussions, which I will go into, but I'm going to go back to a fact that I just said to lead us into this week's episode. Sally Ride flew on the second mission of the Space Shuttle Challenger. Now, I'm going to talk about more than the Challenger disaster in this podcast, but if you want to just hear about space shuttles, you can stop listening when I ask, so how did it happen? I'll try to stay as clinical as I can when I'm describing what happened to Challenger and her crew of seven that day, because it's a painful, shocking story. And if you don't want to hear it, I won't be mad at you for skipping that part. I'll play some music at the end of it. You can listen for that and tune back in when I talk about what the repercussions of the Challenger accident were for astronaut and spacecraft safety. Funnily enough, my coworker Zaina brought up space shuttles at work last week in the midst of me researching this topic. Space shuttles were like the proto-Skylab or the proto-International Space Station because astronauts would run tests while orbiting in space shuttles or they would launch longer-term experiments out of the shuttles and then monitor them in ways that were much, much more dangerous than the tactics we use now. The reason Zaina mentioned the space shuttles was because the space shuttle Atlantis at one time had an experiment on it that studied the growth of amaranth, a grain that's kind of like quinoa, but it's way more protein and fiber and fats. We were taking a cooking class with amaranth. That's why she was testing our amaranth knowledge. My day job is super great, and I get to acquire a lot of random facts. Back to space talk. Space shuttles were the first reusable spacecraft. From 1981 to 2011, NASA had a space shuttle fleet of six that flew a combined 135 missions, which included carrying people and satellites to space, repairing and recovering those satellites, conducting research in orbit, and helping to launch or construct longer-term space stations. Those six space shuttles were, in chronological order of their creation, Enterprise, which uh, never actually was sent into orbit, and then Columbia, Challenger, Discovery, Atlantis, and Endeavour. Two of these were lost in disasters, Challenger in 1986 and Columbia in 2003. But I'll be focusing on Challenger because it was the first of these tragedies, and again, yesterday was the anniversary. We don't have any operational shuttles at NASA anymore. Since retiring Atlantis in 2011, the U.S. has relied on the Russian Soyuz spacecraft to transport astronauts to the International Space Station. The components that would eventually become the airframe and body for Challenger were initially used to test the effects of launching into orbit and then re-entering Earth's atmosphere on a lighter frame. It's all about weight reduction when you're trying to get a thing up in the air, and the success of the Challenger's airframe and body being lighter material meant that all future orbiters could carry a greater payload than the Enterprise, which never actually got it up, and Columbia, which was built at the same time as Challenger. Computer technology wasn't advanced enough in the 1970s to calculate what would happen to a lighter airframe, so NASA spent a year testing the vibration and temperature capabilities of Challenger's frame, which sounds sensual and hilarious. <laughs> Challenger was ultimately deemed spaceworthy. It took three years to build her. These American space shuttles, I can't really speak to any more recent craft, were actually made up of four major components. Two solid rocket boosters, a large orange external tank, and the orbiter itself, which is what carries the name Challenger or Atlantis and makes it to space. When a space shuttle was supposed to launch, the orbiter was wheeled out into what was always Kennedy Space Center in Florida. An intricate arrangement of scaffolding and platforms provided access to all parts of it. You had to inspect the entire orbiter. According to archive NASA webpages, the routine service of an orbiter included reconfiguring the systems for flight, 
replacing parts, and installing new mission flight flight kits and payloads, which, I presume, were the things that were being studied or launched into space. When the orbiter was going to fly, they gassed it up and weighed it to determine its center of gravity. Then they picked the orbiter up and lowered it down onto the orange external tank and the solid rocket boosters. Once it was bolted there, it went through more testing for a week, and then it was moved very slowly to the launch pad at Cape Canaveral, where it spent another month undergoing tests and inspections. More scaffolding, which was uh, rotating scaffolding, let workers access all of the space shuttle at this point. About nine hours before launch, the external tank was filled with liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. And then astronauts got on and did the whole dramatic countdown. At 10, 9, 8, 7 seconds, the three main engines started as, at as close to the same moment as possible. And when the countdown hit zero, the solid rocket boosters ignited, and we have liftoff. During the first moments of ascent, 300,000 gallons of water helped cool the launch pad surface and dampen the potentially damaging sound waves generated from such an awesome launch. And then, even though it was lifting off in Florida, once the space shuttle cleared the pad surface, all ground control systems were taken over by Johnson Space Center in Houston. The solid rocket boosters came off as the space shuttle rose higher and higher until all that was left was the orbiter. In fact, the rocket boosters only burned for two minutes, at the same time as the three main engines of the space shuttle. Once the space shuttle was 24 miles up, the boosters would separate from the external tank, descend by parachute, and land in the Atlantic Ocean to be recovered later by ships. The main engines burned for another eight minutes before they shut down, just before achieving orbit. Here's some fun flight words for you. The main engines and the solid rocket boosters were all gimbaled, which means they were movable. The reason they were gimbaled was to provide yaw, pitch, and roll control to help steer the orbiter on its ascent path. Roll is rotation around the front-to-back axis. So if you were doing a log roll, well, it's right there in the name, isn't it? Pitch is rotation around the side-to-side axis. So if you were twisting to look over one shoulder and then the other. Yaw is rotation around the vertical axis, the way that you would somersault. By the time the space shuttle's main engines shut off, the orange external tank was empty. It would separate and fall back into the atmosphere, breaking up in the ocean. The orbiters look kind of like a plane with its wings pressed back towards its sides. It's a sleeker shape because the orbiter isn't designed to fly horizontally. It's going to fly vertically. It touches down like a plane after it comes into orbit, though, with the wheels lowering and the runway and everything. The orange external tank was the one piece of the space shuttle that didn't get reused. The solid rocket boosters came off after they were spent, but they could be recovered and used for the next launch. Of course, this is all information that had to have been written in the 2000s. It's archived info on NASA's website. I'm sure some variation of this process was performed in January 1986 with the Challenger mission. This is an expensive piece of equipment carrying human life into one of the harshest environments imaginable. Challenger was originally a test vehicle, and all of its components were testing principles to make a lighter spacecraft that could survive re-entry. Challenger's first flight happened in 1983. These space shuttle flights were scheduled to last only a few days at the most, so Challenger's first flight lasted from April 4th to April 9th. All in all, Challenger flew nine successful missions and spent a bit over 62 days in space. She was notable for hosting the first spacewalk for the space shuttle program, performed by astronauts Story Musgrave and Donald Peterson. Also of note for firsts, Challenger hosted Sally Ride, the first American female astronaut, on its second mission and the seventh overall space shuttle mission in 1983. The first African-American astronaut, Guyon Bluford, reached space on Challenger's third mission— 
There's a very comprehensive, very technical breakdown of Challenger's missions on the NASA Spaceflight website if you're interested. I'll bold it in the show notes at fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. Challenger flew nine great missions, where greatness is defined by everyone getting home safely. And then 32 years and one day ago, in 1986, it was destroyed in less than two minutes. So, how did it happen? Well, the morning of January 28, 1986 was cold. Temperatures dipped below freezing, even though this was in Cape Canaveral, Florida, and I assume it's always hot, or at least warm, in Florida. These cold temperatures worried a few folks at NASA and the contractors who had worked on the space shuttle project because there had been some worrying events around the O-rings that sealed the joints of the solid rocket boosters. Engineers warned their superiors about the dangers of taking off in these low temperatures. There had already been days' worth of delays on this particular mission, though. Folks were eager to get the show on the road, and Challenger launched at 11.38 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. There was more media attention around this launch than usual because one of the people on board was a teacher going into space as part of a media hype project. Krista McAlfee was a New Hampshire high school teacher planning to give lessons while in orbit for publicity and to draw the attention of school children to the space program. The other people on board were Francis R. Scobie, the commander, Michael J. Smith, the pilot, Ronald McNair, Judith Resnick, and Ellison Onizuka, mission specialists, and Gregory Jarvis, a payload specialist. Payload specialist, as far as I can tell, was a general designation for anyone who wasn't necessarily a career astronaut, but who was on the ship doing something that was probably experimental. McAlfee was also designated as a payload specialist because she was on the ship to connect with children from orbit. She was going to be the first civilian in space. There were seven people total on Challenger. 73 seconds after liftoff, and I watched the video, it's on YouTube, the spacecraft broke apart. It didn't explode, though both the commentator and Mission Control in the 1986 broadcast described it as such. It's a lot of smoke trails and suddenness and fire. I can see why they thought it was an explosion. In truth, though, the O-ring on the solid rocket booster failed, and the external fuel tank collapsed, releasing and mixing its liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen propellants. They ignited into a giant fireball thousands of feet in the air. The shuttle itself was still intact and rising, but quickly losing its course. It broke off the tank, and because it was moving so fast, but not attached to its boosters in the external tank, it began to break apart under the stress of the aerodynamic force. Valerie Neal, space shuttle curator at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., described it. Quote, the tail and the main engine section broke off. Both of the wings broke off. The crew cabin and the forward fuselage separated from the payload pay, and those big chunks fell out of the sky, and they further broke up when they hit the water. The spacecraft plunged into the ocean, and it was this final act that killed Challenger's entire crew. Salvage crews spent weeks recovering pieces of the shuttle and the remains of the seven crew members. Pieces of Challenger herself are still appearing. Ten years after the disaster, two large pieces washed ashore in Florida. The Challenger debris are stored in a missile silo at Cape Canaveral, and it's a federal crime to hold on to materials from Challenger if you find any.
June 1985, Sally Ride was assigned to go up on the Space Shuttle Program's 61st mission, but mission training was terminated after the Challenger disaster. NASA didn't launch any space shuttles for two years. Instead, Ride served on the Presidential Commission investigating the event. President Ronald Reagan assigned a range of people to discover what had happened and how to ensure it never happened again. The commission was headed by former Secretary of State William Rogers, who I do not know, but it included some people that I do know. Former astronaut Neil Armstrong, former test pilot Chuck Yeager, scientist Richard Feynman, who I want to talk about at some point, and of course Sally Ride. The commission found that there had already been concerns about the O-rings that attached the solid rocket boosters to the external tanks, but the engineers who raised these issues were ignored by their superiors. In addition to this technical issue, the commission uncovered cultural problems at NASA, such as not voicing all problems to the launch decision team and failing to take action when design problems were brought up. The company that had designed the solid rocket boosters, Morton Thiokol, had also ignored warnings about potential issues. Basically, a breakdown in communications contributed to the Challenger disaster. During the two years that the shuttle program was shut down, NASA made technical changes to the shuttle designs and also worked to change the culture of its workforce and the structure of its shuttle missions. The shuttle program resumed flights in 1988, but satellite launches were performed by reusable rockets instead of onboard the space shuttle. Astronauts were no longer responsible for repairing satellites. The space shuttle did continue to carry out numerous important missions, including the repair and maintenance of the Hubble Space Telescope and the American contribution to the construction of the International Space Station. Still, it was 22 years before another civilian was sent into space. Barbara Morgan, who was McAlfee's backup, flew on Endeavour in 2007. This was in the wake of a different space shuttle disaster, Columbia, which occurred on February 1, 2003. That was an issue on reentry instead of takeoff, and space shuttle missions resumed in July 2005. The NASA space shuttle program ended for good in 2011. And that's Challenger. And a bit about NASA's space shuttle program from the 1980s to the 2010s. It had a long, illustrious career with some dramatically tragic events in it. I don't like thinking about space travel that much, and this is kind of a sobering episode in the wake of last episode's excited celebration of astronaut life. Sorry about that. It's the anniversary, though, and I did want to know more about what happened and why. Hopefully that knowledge was worth it. For the next episode, I'm leaning towards something similar to Dark Sky Reserves, National Radio Quiet Zones. They were mentioned in a recent story arc in the podcast that got me hooked on podcasts, The Adventure Zone, and I hadn't heard of them, but they make total sense. There are a lot of radio telescopes, and while they aren't affected by lighting conditions the way regular telescopes are, they are affected by sound. I also want to talk transit of Venus, and I'm working on questions about dark matter and dark energy for my friend, but I also realize that she's done a lot of radio astronomy work, so she could be a valuable resource there as well. Want to hear something else about space? Please send me some suggestions on Tumblr or tweet at me on Twitter at HD in the Void, all one word. You can subscribe on iTunes to make sure that you catch new episodes, especially in what seems to be a very tumultuous episode researching and releasing time for me. <laughs> I would love it if you threw me a rating and maybe even a review, too. I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy in space. Even though this was kind of a serious subject, it still sorts my comic book collection. I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to sort your comics collection, too. The next episode will be up on February 12th. 
You can find my sources, music credits, a vocab list, and the episode transcript at all one word, fill the void with space.tumblr.com. Hugs and kisses from the void. HD, signing off. <laughs>